I was thinking this week about American Gothic. You know American Gothic, right? It's that Grant Wood painting of a farming couple standing side by side. And it's what everyone thinks of when we picture American farmers. It's a painting that gave hope to people during the Great Depression. And because the farmers are stern and virtuous and very Midwestern, it's been held up as this romanticized vision of what growing is. But it's funny what you see when you look a little closer. Grant Wood wasn't much of a farmer. He used to walk around town in overalls, but according to his biography, he was grossed out by udders and fresh eggs. The man in that painting, he isn't a farmer either. It was Wood's dentist who he dressed up to play the part. And while America loved the artwork as something that embodied, quote, real farming, Iowans pointed out that Grant Wood couldn't even get the pitchfork right. It only had three tines instead of four. I guess the reason I'm telling you all this is because we all have this image of what an American farmer is. But I'm not sure that's right. As I've talked with more and more people, I'm amazed by how many different cultures have contributed to the growing practices that we kind of just accept as American today. Hey there, I'm Mangesh Hatigler, co-host of Part-Time Genius, one of the co-founders of Mental Floss, and this is Humans Growing Stuff, a collaboration from iHeartMedia and your friends at miracle Grow. My goal is to make this the most human show about plants you'll ever listen to. And along the way, we'll share sweet, inspiring stories, tips and tricks to nurture your plant addiction, and just enough science to make you sound like an expert. In today's episode, we're going to celebrate the diversity of growing, the histories and civilizations that have shaped today's culture of gardening, and the underrepresented communities that have deep roots in our soil. Because it turns out, growing is just as multicultural as our country. Chapter 5, Giving Thanks and Giving Shine. So I am a huge fan of life hacks. And one of the things I read is that if you're having trouble keeping your plants alive September through October and maybe even into November, you can place some rocks nearby. The rocks will soak up the sunlight during the day and continue to hold that heat overnight. It keeps the soil warmer and protects the plants nearby from frost. It is brilliant, but it's also old wisdom. According to Yes Magazine, Various American Indian tribes, including the Iroquois, used the practice as a way to keep early frost at bay. But what other ancient farming practices have we overlooked? I wanted to hear more, so I called up our pal Naima Pennyman. She's the program director at Soulfire Farms. Soulfire prides itself on using Afro-Indigenous technical and spiritual farming practices. And the farm has used those practices to regenerate 80 acres of land. As program director, Naima coordinates farming immersions and workshops for the local community. So I wanted to ask her about the histories of growing and who we should actually be thanking for so many of the techniques we use today. Hi, Naima. Thanks for joining me. Hi. I'm so excited to be chatting with you because I want to talk about Soulfire Farm and Ask a Sister Gardener and the wisdom of ancestors. But before we do any of that, would you mind telling me a little bit about how you got into farming? I've always been deeply inspired by the natural world. 
But the place I always felt the most at home was amongst the plants and trees and waterways of Western Massachusetts. My sister and I, from a young age, would forage edible things from the forest that we could eat and grow some food in the garden behind our house. And that, to me, always gave such a sense of connection, power, and purpose. Who taught you to, to forage in, in these forests? You know, we have some naturalist books and things we would refer to, uh-huh. but some of it was our own intuition and exploration. Like, I remember finding this sapling that when we peeled its bark back, you know, smelled of cinnamon and, you know, we would know how to identify that tree and we would harvest wood sorrel. And I don't remember how we learned that that was edible, but hopefully we verified it before we tried it. But we (laughs) I love that. It sounds so like fun and adventurous and and romantic. So tell me a little about Soulfire and how how it came to be. So Soulfire is a Afro-Indigenous community farm and we're a training farm dedicated to uprooting racism in the food system and also seeding sovereignty in our communities, creating more opportunities for engagement on every level of the food system from growing food to consuming food. In our lineages, there's so much trauma of land-based oppression, having land stolen from us or um, being stolen from land in our ancestry and that our food system is really built on this legacy of stolen land and stolen labor that hasn't been repaired. Those who grow our food continue to be extremely devalued. We're trying to change that story. So a big part of our work is also about training in African and indigenous heritage ways of growing food, inspiring the next generation of farmers and food sovereignty activists, and also helping to build a movement on regional and national levels. You know, I'd watch a a few of these videos and my producer Molly pointed out this reference of braiding seeds into one's hair. Yeah, such a powerful story. So homage and deep reverence to our grandma's grandma's grandma, Susie Boyd, who was one of many people in the Dahomey region of West Africa during the horrific transatlantic slave trade, who had the courage in the face of this perilous and uncertain journey of the Middle Passage to think of what would be social security for that uncertain future. And she and others braided seeds into each other's hair before boarding those ships to the Americas where they faced bondage. In the face of not knowing what would happen, trusting that there would be land on the other side and that this would be social security for the descendants. You know, so many of the seeds that are indigenous to the continent of Africa, black rice, coffee, cola nut, okra, black eyed peas, sesame, eggplant, many melons and more were seeds that came with our ancestors on those ships. And not only did they pass on that seed, but also the knowledge of the indigenous ways of knowing land and how to grow food and right relationship with the lands. You know, that, that's such a, such a powerful and incredible story. And facing what these people were facing to, to have that sort of foresight is, is just remarkable. You know, I, I'm curious in what you're saying. Is there a growing practice that, you know, some people who are listening might be surprised originated in these Afro-Indigenous cultures and in this history? The Ovambo people of northern Namibia and southern Angola have incredible soil fertility practices by mounding and creating raised beds. Shout out to Cleopatra, who during her reign in ancient Egypt, 
really understood the power of the earthworm to create the most rich, fertile soil and had cadres of priests who were dedicated to studying the habits of the earthworms. She literally had a rule that you could be put to death for harming an earthworm because she understood how I did important. not. I yeah. did not expect uh, <laughs> Cleopatra to get a shout out on the show. Yo. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so many more. Also, rememberers who have many who are remembering these ancestral ways and helping to proliferate these teachings in the new world, right? Uh-huh. So here at Soulfire, the land we are on was originally stewarded by the Stockbridge Muncie Mohican bands, and they were forcibly displaced to a reservation in Wisconsin in the 1800s. We have been forming an intentional relationship over the last decade. I've been so inspired by a relationship with a Mohican seed keeper named Warren, who passed on to us the sacred black and white Muncie maize, this beautiful corn that we are growing now at Soulfire to honor that these seeds have come home to their land. We're planting them in the Mohican style as he requested in two foot mounds with 12 seeds, each beginning at the bottom of the mound and spiraling up towards the center and planting them along with winter squash to provide a carpet over the soil and beans that grow up the corn to complete the three sisters, the symbiotic relationship. We are honored to be growing this seed native to the land that we're on. And every seed that we plant, you know, is really a kernel of commitment to end the erasure and displacement of our indigenous relatives who continue to struggle for recognition and basic rights and dignity. I love that. Um, Are you discovering new techniques and, and getting excited for new things along the way too? Oh, absolutely. It's an endless gift, you know, to be in partnership with the land and the land herself is such a teacher. I feel like I'm learning every day. So yeah, like learning new varieties to plant and we call it companion plants, like crops that are friends with each other and help, you know, one helps ward off the pest of the other. So growing chives around the collard bed to help ward off the moth that likes to eat the collards and yeah, learning more about like the friendships between plants and helping to support that thriving. So I, I definitely know from history books and stuff uh, all about George Washington Carver, but I'd never really heard the name Booker T. Watley before. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about his contributions to agriculture. So Booker T. Watley was also a professor at Tuskegee University. And in a time where Black farmers were having a really hard time making a living, partially due to... USDA discrimination, like discriminatory lending. Booker T. Watley had this wild idea. People would laugh at him like, okay, I, I feel like city folk are yearning for the country. We could create an opportunity for them to actually pay us to come and harvest. This was the idea of pick your own. The people will come to the farm and pick their own pumpkins and apples and cabbage. And again, people thought this was a silly idea, but it caught on. This was one of many of Booker T. Watley's ideas of direct farm to consumer. The idea of having a newsletter to let your customers know about what's going on on the farm. You know, name your animals and create a relationship so that people are inspired. Also, this idea of the community-supported agriculture program, which he called the Clientele Membership Club, where people at the beginning of the season would 
pay for a share of the harvest so that you would be able to have your upfront cost to plant your seeds and have your equipment and tools ready, knowing that you had that customer base. Um, so that's some of Booker T. Watley's genius that continues to be what supports many small and diversified farms like ours be able to survive. Is there uh, one thing that you'd love for our listeners to walk away from this interview knowing or, or hearing? So all of us who are listening, we all eat food every day, right? I feel we all have a responsibility to help to heal the broken food system that we've inherited. I want to encourage us to get engaged. There's so many levels around upholding everyone's right to land, on honoring the people who grow our food, working to eliminate food apartheid and support farmers of color. But I want to urge us all to find our role and take up responsibility in this movement. Naima, this is really, really lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much for making the time for this. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Naima talked about ancestors braiding seeds into their hair and bringing crops over to America. So here are four plants you might not have realized came from Africa. One. Watermelon. The predecessor to the watermelon, the bitter melon, was grown widely in Egypt and was valued for being an easy way to hydrate yourself in dry climates. According to National Geographic, melons were actually placed in pyramids to, quote, provide hydration to pharaohs for their journeys to the afterlife. Black-eyed peas, also known as cow peas. These plants weren't just an easy way to get protein. The nutrient-rich crop can actually suppress weeds and help other plants around it grow. Okra. Today it's a southern staple, but okra made its way over through West Africa. The plant is actually closely related to cotton. And one of the reasons American farmers took such a shine to it is because they knew how to grow cotton. Coffee. If you consider coffee's impact on the world, from the Beethovens of the world who guzzled it for inspiration, to college students who use it to pull all-nighters, to the truckers who use that extra cup to go that extra mile... You realize the world owes a great debt to Africa, and specifically Ethiopia, where legend says that a goat herder named Kaldi watched his goats eat some coffee berries and suddenly get all amped up. So he decided to turn it into a beverage. Of course, that just scratches the surface, but it's fun to look inside your fridge and realize how interconnected this world really is. Humans Growing Stuff will be right back after a short break. After I chatted with Naima, I decided to run a little image search. I typed in America and farmers, and then America and gardeners, and then a bunch of other variations. It's strange how far I had to scroll before I found images of people of color. We live in this great big country filled with so many different types of Americans. And yet, there's this persistent reminder of who belongs, when the truth is gardening can and should be for everybody. So I wanted to talk to Jasmine Jefferson, who founded the online resource Black Girls with Gardens, and Stephanie Horton, the plantfluencer behind the Instagram account Botanical Black Girl, to talk about their impact on the gardening community, and to get us all into a conversation about the culture of gardening. 
Hey, Stephanie. Hey, Jasmine. You there? Hey. Hey. Hi. It's so nice to hear your voices. So the first thing I'm curious about, how did you fall in love with gardening and growing? Well, I guess I'll go first. (laughs) (laughs) I've always been around growing. My grandparents have been growers, but I just was not interested in it at the time as a child. I can remember vividly they used to travel with like a shovel and bag in their trunk. So if we pull over, we see something in a ditch, they'll just pull it up if they wanted it. So um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, I've always been around it. It's been, it's been a thing. It just wasn't um, until I got older is when I started to appreciate growing and I became slightly obsessed with it. Was so that, that was that embarrassing to you as a kid? Like to- uh, It was just kind of normal uh-huh. to me. I think one time a friend of mine said something. They were like, are they really going to pull over? I was like, yeah, other people don't do it. (laughs) That's who it was to me. And uh, Stephanie, can you tell me a little bit about your plant story? Sure. I mean, for me, it it was very recently um, when I started falling in love with it. My dad, he would always, you know, at least make an effort to plant tomatoes and cucumbers as far as edible gardening. You know, that curiosity within me came from my dad's side, his side being from Mississippi. We would always travel down um, to the country and I would see them, you know, with their fruit trees and their own farms and stuff. And it was just commonplace. And I love that. And I think that's kind of what started the idea that that is something that I can tangibly do as an adult. And then I started learning more about it and actually going into it and trying to figure out how can I do that on a smaller scale, you know? Yeah. But I've been looking at Jasmine for, I would say, the last two and a half years. Like, she's the resource. I love her. So let's talk about Black Girls with Gardens, because I'd I'd love to hear a little bit more about how that started, Jasmine. What was it that really inspired you to start this website? I was like, okay, so social media is a thing. Let me see who I can connect with in reference to, you know, growing. My background is in psychology, clinical psychology. So I love to research. I want to know more about things and understand it. So that was the whole purpose of trying to find something like that. And there were tons of people out there growing, especially people of color. But I didn't see anything where I can just have a whole like a resource of or a collective by where people like myself, we can get together and we can talk about uh, plants culturally. So I decided in July of 2017 that, okay, I'm going to start this thing and we'll just hang out and talk about plants. And that's how Black Rose with Gardens got started. It has been just an amazing ride seeing how this flourished in the past three years. How, how about you, Stephanie? How did you end up starting this uh, Plantfluencer account? Oh, gosh. And I'm still really weird about that term. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to, what's, a, what's a better term for you? Oh, I'm, I'm, I don't know. Um, I, I'm sure. accepting it now, but it's just so odd to hear sometimes, but that's not something I, I ever sought out to do. But yeah, to really to kind of like mirror some of uh, Jasmine's experience, you know, I started Botanical Black Girl simply because my friends were like joning on me all the whole time. <laughs> like, girl, who cares about your plants? Nobody cares. What are you doing? So I was like, okay, I'm over here. You know, I created some hashtags to hopefully uh, assist in that because it would have been something that I would have appreciated this time last year. You know? Yeah, will, will, will you talk about that? Like, what, what are some of the hashtags you've created and, and uh, what have you seen in terms of a response? Oh, it's lovely. Um, so I made a couple hashtags. First is Botanical Black Girl because 
Duh, mm-hmm. it's me. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I figure that there are other botanical Black girls out there who would like to showcase themselves and find communities. So that's one. And the other is Black Hands Green Thumb. Now, that one I actually took some time with mm-hmm. because there was a moment where everybody was um, either using their hands for comparison to size for leaves or just, ooh, look at my manicure with my greenery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I couldn't find any Black folks. I'm like, okay. And then when I did, it, it really did just kind of shake something in me. It stirred something up. And I had no idea what that was. And it sounds frivolous how affected I could feel when I saw a Black hand doing the things that I like to do. You know, that really did resonate with me in a very real way. And I had no idea what that was, but I was like, hey, we need to quickly see this because I'm sure somebody else is going to feel the same way because representation matters, you know? You know, doing that, I mean, it's, it's simple, but it's to the point, you know? And, right. and that's what I hope to do is just kind of, you know, find other folks so we can find one another and create community. That's the biggest thing. That's it. <laughs> it it's, you know, in, in this world right now, there's so much toxicity. You forget that there's like joy and kindness and yes. and just uh, the joy of knowledge, you know, uh, on the internet right. and to dip into your site and Stephanie's account and these hashtags, it's just like this really nice reminder of what the world can be. Exactly. Jasmine, you mentioned that you are a therapist and do you think that caring for plants and constantly thinking about plants needs makes people more empathetic? I think so. It's a practice. It's type of a method that requires you to care about something else, something else that's living. So if you repeat that and wish something we do as we care for a plan, you can't help but apply that to life. Like they'll begin to apply that to themselves. So they'll begin to apply that to their closest family members, friends. And before you know, hopefully we'll have a better world. If everyone get a plant. <laughs> I know. I, I love I, I've been thinking about that. Like if we give more plants to people, will, will we have a kinder world? Um, I think I heard you say that you've actually turned down opportunities because they didn't feel authentic or, or right for your site, Jasmine. Is that is that true? Very, very much so. I pride myself with Black and Wit Gardens being very authentic. Mm-hmm. There have been tons of opportunities for Black Rose with Gardens to do certain things, but it just didn't align with the type of growing that I support. And I just turned it down. Obviously, it could have been very lucrative and things of that sort, but that's not what I value the most in reference to our community is what's most sustainable for Black people in green spaces. I can honestly say I've turned down anywhere close to 20 opportunities that's just didn't align with us. So do you think gardening gives people of color a sense of liberation that maybe they're not feeling in other areas of their life? Honestly, I do. Um, Gardening allows you to take control of what you're going to consume. That's just straight up what what it does, if we're going to look at it as is. It provides us the opportunity to grow what we want to grow, provide the nutrients that we want to provide, and that's what our family is going to consume. In other lenses, I definitely think it allows us to decide where we're going to put our money. Economically, do we want to support a business or something to that effect? Do we want to support that if they do not support us? I would also add seeing people 
that I've known through the years from different walks of life. So Black folks primarily, though, seeing them happy about, look what I was able to do on my own. Again, it's going back to that ownership. I did this myself. And yes, I get to consume this. um, But also, I can grow this. I can teach my children to grow. Um, I can teach the children in my community to grow and I can help them sustain their family. So often I think for Black people particularly, we don't just think about our own nuclear family. Mm-hmm. We think about everyone else in the community. Right. You know, we, we do try to evoke some sort of thought of longevity and how this can benefit us long term. Right, right. And that's the whole purpose. What we consider a group of people, like even within, you know, black and brown people, we wouldn't consider this type of people hanging with each other, this type of people. We're all connected in reference to we like to grow things. Mm -hmm, And it's it's so beneficial to see like plants or just having a garden, how it affects us all together or how it connects us. And um, that's one of the things that just keeps me going in reference to, you know, black girls garden, because obviously it does get some pushback. And it's in reference to just people who's just not, you know, who who tries to not see color. So definitely Black Girls Garden Daily, as much as we get good stuff, we get bad stuff. It can be very taxing on mental health itself. But I honestly feel like you have to deal with the fact that racism exists. You know, we have been intentionally kept out of certain spaces. Creating a thriving space means that you have to deal with that fact. Mm. It's heartbreaking that, that anyone would come after you for, for building something so beautiful. Yeah, they definitely do daily. But obviously, the good feedback always outweighs the bad. Yeah. I mean, it, it's clear that, you know, you have a real connection to readers. Before you um, found this community and founded this community, did you feel like an outsider when you went to nurseries or when you walked into garden spaces? Most definitely. So when I went into, actually, when I started looking out, looking at nurseries here, like I really didn't get much attention or, and I still don't, I honest, I'll be quite honest with you, I still don't. I have to actually inquire and you have to show some type of knowledge or interest or just show them, you know, hey, I have this Instagram and that's when I get the, that's when I get attention. And it, it's quite, uh, frankly, it's ridiculous, but Black Rose Garden is one of the spaces where I feel comfortable. You know, as we're seeing more representation in gardening and hopefully how it's affecting uh, perceptions of gardening, do you think that spreads into other parts of culture? Do you, do you think that uh, that the way we view gardening as as more multicultural will impact how we we view the world? I think it certainly can. I can see, like even now in our in in the Black plant community specifically. Because I know Black people are not a monolith um, and we all come from different walks of life, one thing that I love is the Venn diagram, if you will, of, you know, being a Black person, being in the plant community and seeing everything in the middle that kind of has these offshoots, right? And that's not really a Venn diagram, but you get what I'm saying. Um, I'm seeing like the sneaker Sneakerheads coming in, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like sneaker culture with plant culture and black culture. And, you know, it, it's seeing everything overlap is what I love because I think as we do uh, bring everything together in like a melting pot, if you will, um, we can still 
identify the differences and appreciate them. Um, and I hope that that would bleed over into the mass culture where they can also identify, hey, they're doing something different, but it's still within something that we appreciate in the larger plant community. You know, just kind of see it and appreciate it versus see it and try to assimilate or change it or say that this isn't the norm. Just see it for what it is and let it be amazing. I think that that could help. Fingers crossed. Um, that's my hopes. Well, number one, it's the right thing to do. If you want to represent gardening, you have to appreciate everything that goes with it. And that's the roots of it. Or you have to include everyone. That's just the right thing to do. I think the exposure to how great this community is and will help people just be better people, honestly, and appreciate our culture and appreciate, you know, the contributions we've made in reference to gardening and agriculture. Stephanie, Jasmine, thank you so much for being here. It's really been a pleasure chatting with you both. Oh, same here. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Making me <laughs> feel all warm and fuzzy. Yeah. <laughs> In so many ways, my life has been easy. My parents raised us in a loving and supporting home. I've been blessed with incredible friends and teachers and family. But every once in a while, I get reminded that I don't belong. Sometimes it's subtle when you walk into a diner and the first question is, where are you from? Because the implication is you're not from here. Or when you walk up to a counter and the shopkeeper has served your friends but tells you, we don't take rupees. When you're in a drugstore and a mom pulls her kid close to her when she sees you, as if you're a threat because you're wearing Indian clothes. How before a flight you get pulled out of line, stopped and patted down a comical number of times, your shoes and bags get taken away for inspection by different people one after another. Even though you were born in New Jersey and you've never even gotten a speeding ticket, And you love this country so much. Or the day after the last presidential election, when you're walking down an empty street in midtown Manhattan, middle of the day, and this tall, well-dressed guy goes out of his way to lower his shoulder and plow into you, knocking you off the sidewalk. And you try to think, why would anyone do that? And the only thing you can think of is, maybe it's because of the color of my skin. Or maybe it was because I was talking to my mom, slipping in and out of English the way we do. And you wonder, what is it about our differences that could possibly have offended him? I'm not complaining and I'm not equating my experience with anyone else's because I haven't really suffered. But there are certain things you just notice. And when my guests told me how they'd walk into a nursery or a garden store and get ignored because they don't look like, quote, gardeners, I know that feeling. When Jasmine talked about how she's worked so hard to create this positive site, but every week she gets some racist comments from people outside the community just antagonizing her, it's heartbreaking. But I know that too. And maybe that's part of why I admire what the work she and Naima and Stephanie do so much. The way Naima is working to preserve and honor a cultural history. The way Jasmine provides knowledge and inspiration to this community and encourages girls who are like her, who are curious. The way Stephanie is creating hashtags and building community to tell people you belong 
Because shouldn't we all be able to hear those words and believe them? This entire series, I've been thinking about gardens as a refuge. How growing is good for your mental health, and it is. But I've been thinking a lot about gardens as identity, too. A way to be proud and show off who you are. After starting this podcast, my aunt sent me a photo of my grandfather's garden. My other grandfather. The photo shows this little waterfall near his bedroom window. It's kind of amazing. He redirected a nearby stream to pass by his window, and it created a little waterfall. As a kid, I just thought it was neat. But now, I actually see it as him expressing himself. He was a self-taught engineer, someone who mailed away for a correspondence course in the U.S. that would teach him electrical engineering. And from there, he figured out how to wire a town and bring electricity to all these places in Goa. So of course, it only makes sense that his garden displayed that same ingenuity. His garden wasn't just the safe space from the world, it was where he could be the most himself. And when you think about gardens that way, they're basically these canvases. All the plants and flowers you choose to grow and the way you choose to arrange them, they're just that. Choices. And every garden ends up as unique as the people who grow them. I don't read as widely as I should, but this week I was chatting with my producer, Molly, and she pointed me to an Alice Walker essay, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. It's about all of these things, race and identity, and of course, gardens too. In the text, Walker lays out how people attempted to rob slaves of their creativity, stamp out those instincts, and yet, over time, that creative spirit persisted. Passed down from generation to generation, almost in secret. The women Walker describes didn't write poems or stories. They poured their creativity where they could, letting it seep into the spaces all around their lives. For Walker's mother, it was her garden. So we asked Stephanie if she would read a short passage from it. My mother adorned with flowers whatever shabby house we were forced to live in. Whatever she planted grew as if by magic, and her fame as a grower of flowers spread over three counties. Because of her creativity with her flowers, even my memories of poverty are seen through a screen of blooms. Sunflowers, petunias, roses, dahlias, forsythia, delphiniums, verbania, and on and on. And I remember people coming to my mother's yard to be given cuttings from her flowers. I hear again the praises showered on her because whatever rocky soil she landed on, she turned into a garden. A garden so brilliant with colors, so original in its design, so magnificent with life and creativity that to this day, People drive by our house in Georgia, perfect strangers and imperfect strangers, and ask to stand or walk among my mother's art. I notice that it is only when my mother is working in her flowers that she is radiant, almost to the point of being invisible, except as creator, hand and eye. She is involved in work her soul must have, ordering the universe in the image of her personal conception of beauty. Her face, as she prepares the art that is her gift, 
is a legacy of respect she leaves to me for all that illuminates and cherishes life. She has handed down respect for the possibilities and the will to grasp them. For her, so hindered and intruded upon in so many ways, being an artist has still been a daily part of her life. This ability to hold on, even in very simple ways, is work Black women have done for a very long time. That's it for today's episode. Don't forget, whether you're a beginner like me, a pro trying something new, or someone in between enjoying your backyard garden, there are incredible resources waiting for you on the miracle Grow website. Next time on our show, we'll be focusing on food deserts in America and the people and organizations who are creating gardening solutions to this widespread issue. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Also, we want to hear from you. What are your inspiring plant stories, relatable struggles, or growing questions? Tag us in your post or tweet using the hashtag humansgrowingstuff. And don't be surprised if you hear your story featured on an upcoming episode. Humans Growing Stuff is a collaboration from iHeartRadio and your friends at miracle Grow. Our show is written and produced by Molly Sosha and me, Mungesha Tegler, in partnership with Ryan Ovedia, Daniel Ainsworth, Haley Erickson, and Garrett Shannon of Banter. Until next time, thanks so much for listening.